Welcome, everybody, to Learn With Lowell. Today, we're joined with Eric McLaurin. He is the host of Religious Wars, which I've checked out. It's a, it's a newish podcast. If you like hardcore history, if you like history of Rome, you're going to want to check that out. He's a journalist who's been on Vice, The Torontoist, Tech Vibes, and Herb. Uh, Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. In one of your recent ones, The American Jihad, which tells the story of Tecumseh and uh, that period of time in Native American and American history, the you talk about how you have uh, this fascination for the spiritual side of violence. And so I thought that was such a really noteworthy statement because most people just are on the violence, most people are on the history, but there's like a spiritual aspect and granted you're host of the religious war. So I, I feel like this, the, there's some synergy there, but what about um, the spiritual side of violence fascinates you? Like, and what is that as well? Like, how do you know it? First of all, I'm a huge history guy. I always have been, yeah. right? And when you read any kind of, history about war about conflict you find that there's always a, a part in the story where the violence really spirals out of control especially if we're talking about mass global conflict um but what always interests me as like somebody who's obsessed with religious history um is that when these stories really really spiral is when god's involved or there are many gods involved or whatever um, and in a story like uh, Tecumseh and Tezcatawa and the Shawnee during the uh, the early 19th century, that's a story that doesn't really get told um, in spiritual violence terms, mm -hmm. um, just because it's so material. It's about colonialism. It's about survival. Um, you know, more modern academics might call it, say it's about genocide. It's about these very political things. But when I really dug into this story in particular about Tecumseh it kind of clicked in for me that this is a spiritual story this is a story about uh you know this is a massive religious reordering for the Shawnee and a bunch of other native peoples in America at the time and it's not told that way usually so that was trying to rectify that and then spiritual violence writ large I mean like in my opinion most of the most uh, interesting wars in human history come out of like the biblical era of human history going way back and obviously you go back to ancient rome ancient greece um literally all of the wars are religious wars the everything mm -hmm. in life was part of religious life yeah. um <clears throat> but yeah so going back all the way to you know babylon samaria whatever you know, up until tecumseh and even world war ii whatever there is this deeply, deeply spiritual side of violence that I think is, you know, historians do a great job showing it, but I'm just trying to really focus on that with my show and my series. It's no, it's it's really well done. Now, I'm gonna say this a lot. I highly recommend this show. Everyone, check Thank it you. out. He's not paying me for this. He didn't even <laughs> offer, <laughs> but he does take the time and energy to make them. So it's really good. You capture it. It, it's like it is that hardcore history quality show really in-depth long multi-parted for the first part and i imagine the the american jihad is going to be multi-parted as well um to come also was a bit of a prophet right like he was i don't know if that, that's a correct term but like whenever i think of someone who kind of pioneers their own religion or their own like make of things i think of like i guess martin luther martin luther is kind of a prophet though he's not really a prophet Maybe my own nomenclature doesn't break down but he's well, like this he's a new thing so Tecumseh, again, this is another thing where if uh, 
like when I was in school, we learned about Tecumseh and it was always in Tecumseh. And then the last par- paragraph of in your history textbook would say something like, and he was, and he did this in part with his brother mm-hmm. who had a religious movement. Yeah. Um, so Tecumseh, Tecumseh wasn't a prophet. He's a very uh, political leader. Um, but his brother, Tezcatawa, uh, who has a bunch of different names throughout his life, and like they're they're a super interesting pair, um, historically speaking. It's but like it's also Tecumseh is this golden child from birth, more or less. Everybody's super impressed with them. White people who run into the Shawnee write about this, and the, the Shawnee they're very nice. Their language is pretty, and there was this incredible boy. You know, like people were very interested in Tecumseh. Very obviously, this amazing guy, but his brother. Uh, sort of the opposite and I'm sure anybody listening can imagine a pair of brothers like that right now where <laughs> you have this one who's incredible and then another one who's you know uh, maybe an addict maybe these other things because that's what Tenskatawa was like he was kind of the runt of the litter in his family and uh, and a drunk um, all of these bad things that one day he would uh, fall into a drunken stupor fall into a coma and then wake up having this religious awakening and then he changed his name from i think it was lalashiga at the time to tenskatawa and tenskatawa translates into the open door Mm. so tenskatawa was this religious figure who doesn't get enough credit these days back in the day they were obsessed with him he was arguably more famous than tecumseh in the uh, 1800s because there was this kind of demon out in the woods changing their their religious practices like their old religious practices he doesn't even have respect for them kind of thing um but Tenskatawa was extremely successful in building this new religious movement um eventually he would like bring followers to like one town this town would end up being destroyed by William Henry Harrison who would go on to become president um all before the war of 1812 started and this is like uh Tecumseh kind of came up in this milieu of brother as this big famous prophet. And again, we don't think about it in those terms anymore. Tezcatawa gets mentioned, if you're lucky, as the in the last paragraph of your history textbook. Or it's uh Tecumseh gets this kind of like, yeah, and uh, and he did all these things, and also he was doing this religious movement thing. Hmm. Um, but it was like the these these two Shawnee brothers who kind of were trying to reorder like the life entirely for a whole race of people they were trying to reorder the religious assumptions of a group of people and they were trying to reorder the political assumptions in order to you know withstand i want to say american but that's not what i mean white i guess i could say kind of encroachment against them and again they made this incredible effort ultimately unsuccessful of course but still very interesting what um was it still animism? I think that's the Native Americans particularly were like the religious piece for their animism or shamanism. Was it like that? Or how would you, what would you describe the tenets of the religious movement and the change as it relates to what they were before? Yeah, uh, that's what, what's the one thing that's tough about talking about Native history, generally speaking, is there's a lot of Native histories. Hmm. Um, and they get very complicated very quickly. Uh, there's like big, big, big breaks with language groups. And you can say the Algonquins behave this way and people who speak uh, 
uh, creeks, they behave this way. But, you know, an Algonquin and a creek who live next to one another, uh, but don't speak the same language might be able to interact better than an Algonquin from Northern Quebec and versus one from, you know, Southern Ohio. So there's, it's tough to say that they have these practices all mm-hmm. throughout native society. But what I can talk about with a little bit more authority is like what Tenskatawa was really trying to do um, with his religious movement, which was a lot of, uh, a lot of kind of turning back the clock on what, native societies had changed what the way native societies had changed uh since the uh introduction of like european goods and things like that so there was a lot of repudiation of uh guns and uh, wool and things that you know kind of makes sense they would want to get rid of mm-hmm. but then there was also um most native tribes again especially in the east would carry medicine bags that would have sacred objects in them and you know, some people think maybe hallucinogenic objects. No one's really sure. They're very secretive about this, even in between tribes and in between divisions within tribes. This wasn't always necessarily talked about. So it hasn't really come down to us, historically speaking. But yeah, getting rid of a lot of really European goods that the uh, natives had used for you know hundreds of years up to that point. And then kind of getting rid of some of the spiritual practices that natives had kept that in Tenskatawa's mind was, you know, the demons or the devil or whatever, however, you know, miasma, whatever bad force you want to imagine that he was imagining. Uh, He was also telling them to get rid of all of their ancient, ancient attachments to move forward in this kind of new faith, this new religion where you know, we are going through the open door, we're going to this new promised land. Hmm. So without, it's it's tough because again, it's the it's complicated already and Tenskatawa's theology was weird. He's a weird guy. It's tough to put pin him down. But in general, it was kind of a revival of a bunch of native practices, rejection of ancient ones, and then a repudiation of the settler ways. It it sounds similar to like the death cults of the Comanche in the like the late eighteen eighties or eighteen nineties that that swept through the area. Is it? Do you see a simile there, or it feels very similar in, t- in terms of like the repudiation and the the drive of uh, I think it was like Ishita or Ishitakawa or whatever his name was for the Comanche. I was just reading the the Empire of the Summer Moon, mm-hmm. so they were talking about death cults, and it just it feels kind of similar to that. It's it's definitely similar. I would uh, to me it's it's it has a lot more in common. And I I don't like saying this, and I don't like when historians say it, but it's a lot. It has a lot in common with kind of Christianity. There's mm-hmm. this kind of end of days feel to it. And he certainly would have been around Christians and been aware of them. And there's also they the there's a kind of one God vibe without it being the focus. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know much about like uh, the Comanche stuff. That's with the ghost dance and all that, yeah. correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't know a ton about that. However, there was a ton, a ton of religious weirdness going on in the era I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like late 1790s, early 1800s, 
you know, largely because all of the Americans who were here were largely religious weirdos in the first place. Uh, and that's what they were doing here. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, these native societies are getting just ripped apart more or less by disease uh, and everything else that comes with a colonial project like the United States. But the uh, at the same time as Tenskatawa, like around the same year, he would have been waking up with uh, with his with his visions and his new way forward. There was another group of uh, Cherokee, I think. It might be, I hope I'm not butchering this, but a Cherokee called the Red Sticks. And the Red Sticks were like Tenskatawa, because Tenskatawa believed he could do magic. You know, uh, there's a famous story about him stopping an eclipse uh, or creating it, causing an eclipse, all this kind of stuff. But the Red Sticks were a new religious movement, same kind of thing, rejected some parts of the old history, brought in new stuff. But they had this... uh, this innate belief that they could control the weather because Mm. they would have, they had these incursions with white people that would like all of a sudden it would start pouring rain and the white people were on a hill and all of their stuff got blown away. And there's these these few instances of the weather really, really helping these red sticks and um, the white people around them started to believe it too. Right. Mm. Like they, they had this very powerful aura for you know a decade kind of in uh, i guess we'd be like georgia like that part of the united states uh where people were terrified of the red sticks and their ability to control you know the earth and the water on the earth and like these kinds of groups like tenskatawa again like they had the belief that he could control the heavenly bodies they were worried about him. They get a lot of the Christians didn't think they were real, but they thought they were demons, things like this, mm-hmm. right? Um, so these these kinds of religious reawakenings that ultimately often spill over into violence were unbelievably common in the United States at the time, especially among native peoples. And in 1811, what really, really, really kick kick started a bunch of weird weirdness in religion was uh there was a massive earthquake in the united states um and that really really like there's christians writing each other at at the time when this happened um accusing other christians of being earthquake christians christians who Mm. are only interested in it because they're so terrified of the earthquake Mm. uh and obviously like the earth shaking is going to cause so there's at the time in this place and kind of talking about all throughout the old Western United States, there's a bunch of groups like this changing and reacting to the world around them. And almost all of them are doing it in this really, really, I don't want to say irrational, but really, really faith-based uh, using faith-based means to react to the world. Hmm. So yeah, the period of time looking at natural disasters that affect society, there was also, I, I think it was, early 1800s, 1810, 1820, somewhere around there, that we had the summer, the, the, the year without summer, there was like mm-hmm. an asteroid impact or a volcano went off and we didn't have a summer, like drops, uh, crops failed, there was famine and stuff. And then uh, from that, Frankenstein was round. So like you have right. all, like it, 
I think sometimes, like nowadays, people we have like so much science, so much like modernity in terms of how people view themselves. Where there's an element of like, oh, I would never fall for that. It's like you have some, you have the instant ability to see what's happening. Like there's there's smog coming down from Canada. I can look at the satellite images and say, oh, there's a forest fire. We're we're putting it out. You know, back then, mm-hmm. if you're if you're on the frontier and like every, you have to be like wary of every every noise and aware of all these different things. It's so easy. Like go out to the middle of a forest and just sit there for a while. You'll start hearing stuff. Like it's it's weird. Like just imagine yourself in that position, and imagine these things happening, and you're trying to make sense of it without the framework that you have now to make sense of it. And then I think it makes more sense to people. And not only that, like con men was a yeah a huge problem in the old west, where in a lot of them, you know, then as now, there's a ton of religious con men in the world today. But if you're terrified uh because you know the the community next to you just got ripped apart by some group for some reason <laughs> uh and also the earth is shaking and there's comets in the sky and you've heard about fires in in the big city you know a mm-hmm. lifetime away from you as far as you're concerned everything just seems horrible and then someone comes on a boat and tells you exactly what you need to hear it's it, you know it, it's uh, it was it's easy to make fun of these old school Americans, especially um, because it's so you can see at this point in American history, you can see so much of modern America. Like mm-hmm. it's really starting to crystallize in my opinion. And, you know, if you have any kind of disdain for American politics, which I'm sure everybody listening has some disdain for American politics, you can really, uh, you really start to you know, see the negative, the negatives of the future in this past. Um, but these people are dealing with a lot. <laughs> That's all I'm trying to yeah. say. To, in in your research, did you ever reach out to like a Shawnee group and uh, or a, a Cherokee group to hear from the like straight from the horse's mouth what they thought of these different periods of time? Because I often feel like history is law as history is gatekeeped between uh, between the ears of people. You know, like there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get to go out. And um, a lot of this period of stuff, I imagine it's from like white settlers documenting it and then maybe an interview with uh, some Native Americans every now and again. But I'm always, I'm always curious to just like straight from the source, like what do you, you know, as someone from where you're at, it's like, oh, what do you think about this region? It's like you like you grew up there. Like, I think there's something else there. Did, have you done something like that? Or do you have interest in like going down there, like really diving in and, and hearing straight from like a source that is different? Um, I definitely wouldn't mind doing something like that uh, in the future. I- didn't do anything quite like that for um, this series and probably won't until it's concluded just because uh, that's much more the work of a historian and I'm not one. Um, Mm. I would, I would, uh, I would worry about my, my methods or my methodology, I should say, uh, and how, and how appropriate it would be. Cause I've just never been trained as a historian. I don't know. Mm. Um, Like you say, not to, not to gatekeep myself, uh, just to be aware of my own limitations though. And um, <clears throat> the other problem is that like uh, the Shawnee don't, it'd be tough for me to talk to the Shawnee. I wouldn't even know exactly who to, who to go to. It's a good question actually, though. I should consider, because like, there's got to be some Shawnee historical society mm-hmm. uh something like that because like a as you you know spot on bullseye it's white guys books i'm reading generally speaking uh, mm-hmm. um 
and like some of them are excellent and like as you mentioned there's for like so to come to specifically um there's a historian in the 18 like 60s and 70s named benjamin drake who uh is like the reason we know pretty well anything about tecumseh and he went around and talked to some of the people in his life and was fascinated by the story you know only two generations after it ended and so there's still people alive and he went and talked to a bunch of living shawnee who knew tecumseh there was a great uh, really sad when i say great quote i remember reading about this era and drake was asking this shawnee elder like you know after you move from this spot to this spot was to come see with you then or did he go with cheesy cat or you know just asking these specifics of the story and this elder says to him we don't remember our stories they lost when we left chillicothe or they were lost when we left pequa whenever we had to whenever our resilience was shattered we don't we don't know anymore hmm. and that was in the 1860s not saying yeah. that historians today shouldn't go talk to uh natives all over the place and, and i mean obviously there's modern native history native history isn't over uh, but yeah. for this story in particular it would have been tough for me to do that and on, yeah. without the proper training <laughs> mm -hmm. and i i hear the the wanting to do it the right way and um i also think that you know give them a voice even if it was like i think i, I seen you the ability to learn the skills or at the very least you know sit down and, and listen and uh, i definitely want to have people of indigenous americas coming on and just hearing their stories because i feel like they don't get the voice that they deserve so do i was reading this i'm reading this book about a third way through it now it's called 1491 was i actually have it pulled up i'm reading it charles uh, c man Yes, uh, which, you know, um, he talks about in the beginning of the book or like uh, the first first third, obviously, but he talks about how there was a tribe that uh, was in uh, South America who like a guy went out there, he visited them and he saw that they were like living in huts and they didn't have a culture, they didn't have religion, they didn't have anything. And they was like, oh, this is Paleolithic America. This is what they were like. And so he goes home and like, that's how people get like this noble savage view. That's how like, he, that's his proposition for, for where these, these things came from. And then people went back, they realized that these people were like refugees from Central America that moved down to this region the time when the Europeans were coming over and attacking the Aztecs. And they're actually like living out in like this bombed out shell of a civilization. Like you can see the lines. I imagine it like being in Chicago or New York and everyone's gone and you don't understand the buildings or the technology anymore. Cause every, like, as you left the people who knew it died and they were like, they were raised up in the, in this area that they didn't even know it was perfectly lavish and lush. They just were taken advantage of it and they didn't even know. And, um, and it's just like this really interesting idea that, that, what if the America suffered essentially like a, an, an apocalypse when we came over with the, the you know smallpox and all these different things? And so as people are moving in, they not only is there like a cultural difference or religious turmoil that's going on, but they're they're like first or second, third generations from an earth like like an apocalypse, and so they're, they're living in like a post-apocalyptic world. And then like the the frames of reference of like authority and all these other different things have been shattered. So that is a, a result is why we're getting all these religious fluctuations this like with the melding of the the, the europeans colonizing and I'm, I'm that's such a vivid idea like imagine living in a city and you don't even know it's a city anymore because it's been overgrown because that's where they were then and and so i wondered to what extent like these people in the 1700s to 1800s were still living with the echoes of those scars of of like it's like eight and ten native americans died it d yeah it depends on how 
well, like that's a lot of historians now are kind of poo-pooing these these mm. figures about yeah. how devastating European disease was. I mean, when I say poo-pooing, rather than eight of ten, they're saying it's five or six, which is still obviously, you know, the 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 Black Death plus. Um, <clears throat> but when like uh, when we talk about it, this this event in American history, you know, large A America, uh, there were complete apocalypses. Like there were entire peoples who are gone, who not a single one, no one was left to bury the dead kind of thing. Um, and when we were, when we're talking about uh, even like American in the early 1700s during the American revolution, there are they already like they those people have the far away memory of people who are gone you know like it's mm-hmm. they're they're rather than like thinking of it as like an apocalypse i kind of think of it of of like a, a thousand apocalypses in a community of of uh of 4000 groups <laughs> and then everybody else is still kind of you know living in that debris like you say yeah and then it kind of explains why it was a bit, I wouldn't say easier, but it was like the Native Americans, I mean, the Europeans coming in, they were able to press in pretty, pretty strongly and, and slowly whittle their way through. And um, I wonder what it would have been like if they didn't have those thousand apocalypses, those uh, different peoples. And like what, what rich tapestry of history is missing? What other religious wars were fought that not a single like shred of recognition exists anymore? Like it's not even like printed into the soil. There's like, uh, but there's tantalizing evidence of those religious wars. Mm. Uh, So the Shawnee um, are, the Shawnee have this idea that they come from Kentucky. Um, And like at at the time, they had this idea that we're from that region of America. And it turns out they're probably right by this. Like they just, just through, you know, ancestral memory, whatever you want to call it. But the Shawnee likely um, descend or, you know, uh, evolved alongside a, a group called the Four Ancient Culture, um, which I'm pretty sure they talk about a little bit in 1491. Um, but the Fort Ancient Culture, they built these like incredible cities, largely out of like dirt and mud. And uh, but they're huge, these giant mounds and Native American mounds are all over the United States and Canada. But like in particular this this ancient fort but in some of the underneath some of these mounds there's bodies buried and it looks like some kind of execution but we don't know exactly what happened and i'm willing to bet if i was a betting man that there's something spiritual going on with this whole settlement but we'll never know anything about it mm-hmm. and if there were clues in other mounds most of those mounds have been destroyed <laughs> Yeah, I was watching the documentary where they were trying to uh, unearth the mounds, which is like archaeologically, and they had to, they had this problem where they needed to rush out and put stakes around different sites because the farmers would just try and push them into the rivers. They would try and like destroy evidence of it because then, because then if, if they didn't, like they would come in and lose that part of their land. It's like, I, I, I mean, I understand want to take care of yourself and, and all these other things, but like, I wish there was a way that they could have been compensated so they made money on finding the, the land versus versus just destroying and, and riding over that history because there's just yeah, so much that's it, been lost it's it's tough it's like uh 
you know, just just my 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 general ideological bent. I'm always gonna like, ah, but think about the stone tools, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's just how I'm gonna how I'm gonna be wired. Uh, however, especially if it's if you find like an important site and you are and somehow as a farmer recognize it's it's obvious importance. I don't I, you know I don't I don't know that I'd be if I was a farmer and not a you know history book nerd maybe maybe my priors were so different maybe I would think okay go get the backhoe we just need to take care of this so no one knows about it yeah I'd like to think I'd be a bit more ideologically consistent but who knows yeah that's that, that's why the you gotta align the incentives maybe if there was like a, a federal structure of like hey you, you find the stuff well, we can imminent domain certain places so one if one if there's a way like you were compensated like paid as a lease for an archaeological dig to come out there and it's like you lease the land to someone else to 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 use and you get the money anyway like i feel like if you align incentives then things work out versus like hoping people do it for the best yeah well that's like i don't know much i've i've got a in the in the distant horizon i've got a show on kind of like the deep past um mm-hmm. i've been working out and i actually don't really know that much about like uh like private property archaeology versus because most of the stuff i read about is uh land owned by the federal governments of the united states or canada or it's Mm -hmm. um unesco world heritage sites in the in the near east somewhere Mm -hmm. but i know for sure that like there have been major archaeological discoveries that have happened in like in some guy's backyard i'm not exactly sure how that worked then then or now yeah the do, do you uh, I think there's five to seven different theories oh I guess hypotheses on how how people came to Americas and then also like how how late and past in the past can we go before there was like an actual settlement versus like I, I could see like there being like a like a Lance Armstrong of explorers just like was like looking around here by themselves but you're not gonna rem- you're not gonna find that body that body's gone you're gonna find the evidence of that unless you're like Lewis and Clark who's like you know peeing mercury or something the, um, so like a permanent settle settlement so okay two questions here how how early do you think the permit the first permanent settlement was in america so like when i was a kid it was like 10 it was like seven to ten thousand then it was twenty thousand i think there's now evidence to like 50 to thirty thousand but i'm curious yeah. your thought on that and then like the follow-up question is do you have a favorite theory for how that settlement came to america the pop well i guess the populated america yeah how, what's your favorite theory there um my best guess I do. I, I, I'm glad you noted because I've noted it too that like every time the Bering Strait theory comes up, it just gets pushed back 10,000 years or the, or the past 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, my guess is that people were coming to North, Amer- North America or the landmass around it for a long, long time, longer than we suspect. Yeah. I've, I've read, I don't know if it's true, but I've read that there's some like possible. Denisovan activity like in the around the the, the horn of Chile and the very mm. southern tip that then that goes back like a hundred thousand years and I mean that's not human but it's you know that's a wild, yeah and again I'm, I'm I might be talking out of school a little bit with that but uh yeah I I suspect that just being uh being travelers and explorers is one of the things that we do mm-hmm. um and like yeah I, I think that through the bering strait maybe like hey i don't know maybe through atlantic sea routes maybe there was 
a lot calmer. It was easier. Maybe they fished off a canoe and just survived that, you know, two months, three months, six months in a boat. I have a feeling though, that like the, the peoplings of the America, I think in another 10 years, it'll probably move back another 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's all, all of that stuff is generally just the Bering Strait theory. They're not talking about coming through the Arctic or wherever else, which again, unlikely, but the entire human story is unlikely right (laughs) Mm -hmm. i think yeah i agree with you i think we're just going to keep going back and back and back the humans are explorers i think it's just in us to do that the my my favorite theory for the populating of america is the kelp highway like we we just canoed our way down the, the the side which is also the hardest one to prove or disprove because those areas that we would have hugged the shoreline are like now like a mile underwater. So all, all, all potential evidence, like how do you, how do you even do that? There, um, if you, there's a theory from the early sixties, 1960s. I can't remember this was an anthropologist, not an archeologist, but he had an idea that the, the entire world that rims the Pacific ocean uh, was all one culture in deep into ancient past. And I know it kind of, you got to be careful when you talk about the ancient past, generally speaking, because you start getting into Graham Hancock territory uh, when you're talking this way about one culture over, I don't know, 40,000 miles or something like that. Uh, uh, this this giant mega culture that he describes, but like is, is, the, is the same idea that people just kind of went around this giant ring up to North America from, you know, japan and uh the indonesia kind of wrapping around the entire pacific um, pacific ocean i'm at like like the way the mediterranean sea was for the romans mm-hmm. uh the pacific ocean was just this giant kind of uncrossable but thing you would follow along in the deep neolithic world i don't know if that's like a you know a widely accepted theory among anthropologists or uh historians or anybody but it's still super fascinating it's interesting it's an interesting thought experiment at the very least the i I find it unlikely that there'd be like a monoculture just even in our conversation you have like a shawnee not knowing what a a sister shawnee tribe would you know would have in their medicine pack and that's like geographically maybe like a five square mile ten square mile area and we're talking a region that could sink china repeatedly in it and still not uh, see the tips like it, it's a, a mm-hmm. massive spot so i i would think that like the the, the definitely like, like some layering layer. there of different cultures for sure and i think like the quote i remember reading from uh the dawn of everything was uh uh he had discovered a like very ancient stone tool in uh british columbia i think or the pacific northwest somewhere and like some kind of stone axe and his like his quote to his assistant was now i know exactly what the stone axes in china look like which i mean you know there's only so many ways to turn a stone into an axe and the relationship between the material culture and like the actual culture is interesting to ponder but it's still i do like thinking about the world of the deep past as a kind of like the world now just Still, just everything's slower and simpler, but there's still massive connections over great distances. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, we're the same. 
we're the same type of people. Like there's been genetic mutations to make our brains a little bit smaller and more faster, like better myelin sheath and all these different things. So I think in that period of time, our brains have decreased by about the size of a lemon. But fundamentally, the people of 100,000 years ago had the same capacity for things as we do today. If you, I think if you grabbed one and raised it today, it would have, it'd probably do just as well as anyone, any other average human. So like, I think that's a big thing as well. It's like, it, it wasn't a different species 100,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago. So if you had like, a hundred hundred thousand people doing something they're probably they're gonna do something very well like at a certain point people just start building pyramids or building things yeah yeah that's a super interesting question of like when the first human was like there's the the anthropologists break it down now by like the difference between anatomically modern which yeah that goes way back three hundred thousand maybe even longer it could be half a half a million years for all we know but uh we also have like uh behaviorally modern to mm. describe because I agree with you totally that a hundred thousand years ago we're the same animal, but uh, in the archeological record at the point 50,000 years ago, we started to act real different uh, from the stuff we would leave behind. And yeah. like, that's the anatomic or behaviorally modern humans. Like if you want hard evidence for the earliest human beings, the deepest we can go back is 50,000 years because those are our oldest like cave paintings and things like that where we're doing things that are recognizably human and rather rather than uh, hominid, you know? Yeah. It's something that I love about, I just, I love this about cave paintings. Wherever it is on the planet, the one thing you'll always see or typically will see is a, is a hand and a stencil around it. And I think yeah. every, everyone listening, when they were a kid, drew their hand with a stencil around it. And I feel like we didn't, like no one was like, oh, let's ca copy the cave painting people. There's just something human about putting your hand on a wall and like tracing it to say I was here. I, yeah, I love way, that. I love I love that. Into the world. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's really beautiful. And um, the I, I wonder to the extent it's like, it's a population of humans. Like what if it's like, you, you, if there's like a thousand or two of us around, like we, we do all right, we still get eaten by lions. But when there's like a, when there's like a, a certain population of people in a region, then we start building up and doing other things because at certain points in our history, I think pre 50,000 years ago, there wasn't that many of us around. Like we kept having these bottlenecks of, uh, of droughts and these things that kept almost wiping us out. And actually, I wonder to the extent that the ability to the, this curiosity, this earning to uh, as like Carl Sagan and uh, Herman Mevel and like Moby Dick say, like to, to sail uh, forbidden seas, these unknown areas came from these droughts, these these things that were like whittled down people to be only the ones that were willing to explore and go new areas so that they would be more drought resistant as a species. I wonder if the the thing that really changed wasn't so much a cultural, which I, I think the thing before the culture was a population thing, like the population had to be of a certain size and uh, dynamic enough where then the, the the different culture could then emerge. It's the difference between like these people that were found in South America living in the shell of a civilization that didn't have the, the mass to sustain themselves. Like over like uh, 40 years, they went from like 2000, like 50 people. So like there's something there that they weren't even sustaining themselves that I wonder if like the population is the thing that allowed the rest to come after it. And like, that's the, that's the, like the, the watershed moment. Yeah. It's interesting to think about um, population in in terms, especially like these neo, like the you know, genies out of the bottle in terms of population, uh, it'd be mm -hmm. kind of tough to mitigate the population of the Earth in any meaningful way now. But it's interesting to think about 
like in North America, so like the Shawnee, for example, there were different uh, native groups who would like, who liked bigger cities, who liked larger populations um, for all of the reasons we like larger populations, safety, etc. But at the same time, I think what a lot of people do, not accusing you of this at all, but like mm-hmm. what a lot of people do when they talk about, you know, recent uh, native peoples in the United States or going all the way back to uh yeah you know someone camping out um on an island in the Bering Strait uh I think a, a lot of these people have decision making abilities and it yeah. is in a lot of like I'm sure most of it is resources and following animals and blah, blah 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 but I think that there may have been a time where like uh the Shawnee at some point decided they didn't want to live in the foreign ancient culture fort ancient culture anymore and mm-hmm. the in the Fort Ancient culture was like very recognizably a city state. You know, it it had its big area and then little areas around it that seem certainly under its control and influence. But eventually, they thought that's a bad idea for one reason or another. And maybe it was just a drought or, you know, the an earthquake. Who knows? But I do think that it's easy to take agency away from people when we're reading about them and and their actions. Uh, mm-hmm. as instead of giving them the idea that like giving them the ability to have the idea that they want to live a certain way and therefore mm-hmm. enacting on it. And ultimately, I think like if we're talking about behaviorally modern humans versus anatomically modern or whatever, I do think that's like the ultimate distinguishing factor in what a human being actually is, is that we can, you know, recognize our, our surroundings and make choices to change them. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I wonder how we'd be able to study that as we move back in the past with limited evidence to differentiate. Because I... uh, there's an idea called schismogenesis. Um, it's an, in anthropology circles where if you find a settlement, um, like a Neolithic settlement, you're likely to find a settlement over a river or where a river once was um, that is that behaves very different than that uh, that uh, previous settlement. On mm-hmm. purpose. That's uh, and, the idea, and then the idea is that like human beings relate to each other and we copy from one each other, one another, but also we see how other people live and decide we don't want that at all. So mm-hmm. you might, so you like, uh, you might have, there's famous examples um, in the Western United States of like kind of in Southern British Columbia the people there used to live to have these uh, very kind of authoritarian power structures, very hierarchical, big parties, all this kind of stuff. And then you get into, uh, you know, Washington and Northern and up to Northern California, the people there, they have a lot more of an egalitarian structure, but everything's a lot more uh, like the, uh, some writers have called them like uh, American Protestants before hmm. columbus because they had this kind of sober sensible work ethic etc and like in likely those two tri- tri- very aware of one another's existence and define themselves against each other hmm. i think that's what that's what i was kind of essentially like you say it's tough to study but that uh, like yeah. schismogenesis is something that uh anthropologists are aware of hmm. That's interesting because inherently you get two people together and they consider themselves an us and then like make something else to them. I think that's just like a human nature, like us together, like like people 
we're like working together every day like it, it take, only takes two people to have like an in and out group uh, is what i'm trying to say yeah. so I, I could i could see how easily there would be like hey we're we're this group we don't do what this group does we do our own thing and then like over time there's this great study of uh of uh monkeys who were they were brought in and there was like a, some bananas on the, on the top of a pedestal and with the ladder if the, you could go up there eat them they love the bananas but if you went up there they'd hose you <laughs> so like get up there you get shot off and they're like oh don't do that so whenever someone were to come up they would stop them from from going to it so they started move, removing the monkeys that ever were hosed to the bananas and then it eventually got to the point where only monkeys were there that were trained not to go up there and they were still reinforcing the new monkeys to not go up the ladder and grab the bananas yeah. And so there's this there's this element of like the people who made the change who understand what why the change happened were gone but the change of like these people do something differently we do this differently uh is there and now being held together by the pre the preceding generations so it's, it's very like innate uh at least uh like a great ape type uh feature in people or yeah for, great no, apes, for yeah. sure I, yeah it's like I, I, the, the banana study is always interesting to me because like there's this um kind of human 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 supremacy you might say uh idea where we're like yeah those those monkeys they they don't they don't even know why they're not climbing the ladder and it's just like well yeah but they don't really need to because they'll get yeah. hosed <laughs> it's that's kind of what culture is in a lot of ways right yeah i think uh there's elements of that in human society all over the place i would um i think anyone sitting down and start like going through the day and asking why I do this, why I do this, why I do this, and asking at a certain point you'd be like, I don't know, I was just kind of told to do this. I was just, I was just yeah. kind of told. Yeah, and there's like, you know, for some things like I was told to look both ways before crossing the street. There's this survivorship bias, and like the people who didn't got ran over by cars. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, the one one thing that I like about the the Shawnee and that region of uh, time. Uh, it's interesting. I, I seriously, I love the fact that you look at it from the spiritual religious aspect because it's it's one that doesn't innately come to me, but I see the value of it. The, the they had different government structures. There was like the Confederacy that I think um, Tecumseh either like came into or like helped form. Like they grabbed a bunch of tribes together. Like there were there were different. I think there's this, this element like they that people thought either that all tribes were the or one tribe so if you're talking to one you're talking to all of them that was like we've talked about like that's not true like they they were yeah. many differentiate differentiating factors uh but also this idea that or they're like so individualist individualistic that they never work together and so i love the confederacy as this like little microcosm of their own form of government um, now i have a hamilton song stuck in my head but the <laughs> The, what do you what do you what do you think about the confederacy or like the system of government that they used to like latch together to to make the the change that they wanted to have in the world yeah like so the the iroquois confederacy or the more more popular name now haudenosaunee confederacy uh i think doesn't get enough credit in its in its role in like american history i think uh, mm -hmm. that the founding fathers were very aware of uh like that it's a it's a political organization that might maybe older than the Roman Empire for all we know. Like it's mm -hmm. uh, uh, in some iteration or form. Uh, and like, yeah, the Iroquois the or <laughs> the reason Iroquois has fallen out. Just a quick aside: the reason mm -hmm. Iroquois has fallen out of favor is because uh, Iroquois is an Algonquin word. I might be confusing this, but it's a they're 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 enemies language group. Um, mm -hmm. And it means savage killer. <laughs> so, so to call to call these people Iroquois is, is uh, you know, 
it'd be like calling all Canadians dumb Canucks or something like that. But uh, yeah, yeah, they hear the uh, Haudenosaunee Confederacy. That's its own crazy, interesting political body that I recommend uh, anybody look up how it works. As I'm going to butcher it, but like they would have these uh, different groups within the confederacy would come together mm-hmm. and they'd argue and debate over council fires and then move around the council house in order to determine what to do it's very much a parliament uh, yeah, it was i love i love this if i remember it right the simplicity of their design was the like i think it was like the two biggest groups had to agree first like everything was like grouped in tuples uh in two pairs and so Two groups had to agree on it, but then it would go to the next group. And if they didn't agree on it, it would go back to the beginning. But if they did agree right. on it, go to the next, 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 next. And so for for uh I think the biggest groups were were first, so that like all the little groups couldn't be like divided and conquered to agree with them and like pitted against each other, like to have like some type of like civil war go on. So like the the way it was set up was that you already knew what everyone else thought. And it was so well debated at each stage that by the time the conclusion came, like it had a consensus that was kind of like locked in there was like some there was such a strong bias towards like moving forward because people were like kind of t- tired of it but i i like that system of of um like marrying the biggest like the two biggest like people like not bullies but like two biggest kids that are most likely to fight people uh together and have them lock out and work out their problems before the other people have to like be forced to choose sides and now it's just like they're all on the same side working and then everyone else gets their voice heard i, I think that's the the uh the Haudenosaunee uh confederacy that we're talking about yeah definitely um and like the they were like I don't you know I think a lot of times when you cover native history in the in North America you can you can get into this kind of self flagellation because like why we're both settlers et cetera right but uh I do think while trying to avoid that and like oh we just ruined this beautiful the Garden of Eden and we came here and shit all over it kind of stuff uh. I do think it is very interesting how we've been able to, in our own minds, like, right, the native people, like the Haudenosaunee, uh, they didn't have uh, gunpowder or cannons or anything like that. But, but they also didn't have a king. They had like a kind of representative, you don't, couldn't call it democracy, but they would have thought democracy was the dumbest thing they'd ever heard about, right? Like, they had this a representative form of government that was all about debating ideas um and like now in today's uh, in our world as settlers we would think of having a king as something that's kind of backward and if you do have a king it's someone who's in this kind of ceremonial position um and unless it's you know saudi arabia or some country that no one wouldn't call it backwards but you know i would say most westerners might call that idea less politically evolved mm-hmm. but at the time <laughs> when they got here when europeans saw this Haudenosaunee confederacy and it most of them didn't care at all but when um the missionaries and stuff did want to learn these things what was their reaction to this this political body that debated ideas well this is you know backward pagan nonsense if you want to do something, you need your God king. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and, you, and still, I feel like we haven't really, as a culture, um, you know, recognized what we took, uh, not just in terms of, of, of land and like, you know, uh, more obvious like lives of their tribal members, but uh, 
it wasn't just the Romans who were doing politics <laughs> before Europeans. You know, mm-hmm. there's a large political bodies here that were, I would, I would argue, a lot more rational and more enlightened even than what was happening in Europe when the Europeans came here. But it's never discussed that way. It's always kind of, well, that's great politics we're going to do, but we're just going to blast you in the face with our blunderbuss. And that's kind mm-hmm. of the beginning and end of the story. Yeah, I often wonder what all did the American framers have at their at the ready to think about how to frame democracy as it moved forward? Because like people think now, like, oh, well, they had all these things. Like, not really. They had like Athens, Rome. Uh, but if you look at like, the structure that, Amer- that America came out with, there was really no, there's no like one-to-one. Like they invented a lot of weird stuff and they like the cobbled stuff together. So I do wonder what credit, oh, yeah. what, what like debt of credit do do we do the name americans deserve to have with in our in our history for how they influenced uh, how we framed our government more than you think i would say probably even more than i think mm-hmm. there's um in the like very early days of american colonialism there was a uh, a uh, missionary a group of missionaries who talked to a, uh, I think he was an Algonquin leader named Candy Aronk, and that's that's what they called him. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, everybody in the kind of educated world of Europe and you know settler America, etc., they had the idea that Candy Aronk was um, an invention. This idea that these these missionaries would go talk to native people, and um, they would invent. A native person to kind of put their own ideas in this native person's mouth as a way to critique their society because they couldn't critique their society uh more modern historians now see some evidence that candy Aronk was a real person and he even traveled to france um and we're talking like the 1640s and 50s and likely took place in salons and stuff and what was he talking about in these salons well representative government mm. <laughs> um uh, the rights of the individual. You know, it, it, it's, it would be a little bit much to say that the European Enlightenment started because of natives, <laughs> Native Americans. Um, but I also think that like Candy Aronk as a figure will probably become more more popular as time goes on. Um, and also, it, I think it's just like, you know, not pull, putting on my university buzzwords or anything, but white supremacy uh, you know, colonial mindset where people assume this was fake. And I'm, frankly, I don't think most people want to hear it anyway. Mm-hmm. That our intellectual tradition we live with doesn't come from Athens and Rome, but like maybe our, our government structure does, but the ideas about mm-hmm. what makes, uh, you know, an enlightened society actually enlightened. I think we owe a lot more to North, North America than we, uh, than we pretend we do. Yeah, I think the ideas are viruses. They like they spread, especially if there's something innate in them that are is true, and people are already reaching for them anyway. Like the, I think there was a study on this, and I always hate bringing it up, but I, I'm I'm fine with it because there's the population isn't of high school and younger age for the, the show. But for instance, suicide when when one when when there's one suicide in a school, they found that you have to like come in with like a correct like a ton of help like a ton of counselors, ton of like all support because if, if you leave it alone, you'll have like just a wave of suicides after that. Yeah. Cause it's now, it's now in the zeitgeist. It's now like permeated. It's like, Oh, that's something I could do. 
it like it really affects people so i could see this person going out there and start spreading like hey what if people were first you're not happy with your king and like you started doing all these different things and it, it like it hits something true in them that they were already working through with the uh, not the renaissance um was it the renaissance no it's not the renaissance there's like a the different like, period the yeah. enlightenment thank you very much like there's they're already searching for these ideals so i wonder if, if like they it could, i could totally see them uh this person coming in and having just this formulation of a solution that just slots in and starts running and people don't even know it's like when you have a conversation and 40 minutes online it's like how did we get here but right. it all came from something and so and even even more yeah. than not not knowing but actively uh actively act, like maybe not actively concealing it but purposely concealing it in some way where no one no one in an extremely xenophobic racist society is going to listen to in france is going to listen to an english person about what they should do yeah <laughs> let, let alone someone from a world away it's you know with all of these other uh, uh aggravating factors right yeah the one of the just this disgusting example from the 1491 book is how I think there's like the Taino Indians went from like 5 million to like 5,000 people over the course mm -hmm. of like a generation because they were just worked to death. And there was a person who wrote about it, but he wouldn't let people publish it for like post him, you know, dying. But then it got kind of lost and it didn't come out until like 1900s. But like they were so concerned about the backlash of saying certain things that they like squash it themselves. And so I could imagine someone in France saying like, hey, I have this idea. But if I say it's these people, they're not going to take it seriously. So I have to yeah. kind of say it's my idea. So like un unintentionally, they're they're like forming into the system. It's kind of like, a, I don't know what that like, I, I look at themes or like patterns that seem to like prevail in humans. And one thing that seems to happen is like when, when there's a value in one system that goes to a different system, whichever whichever system has the determinant value. So like in, in, in uh, ancient times, Romans really valued silver and they, they had a lot of stuff to buy with silver and so they would go to india and india was like i don't give a shit about silver you want silver uh, we want these other things and so but at a certain point the the india indian indians um started seeing silver on the same weight as the romans because they were they were forced to see it in the same light so they weren't taking advantage of it. And so i wonder to the extent that like ideas are the same way it's like they didn't um the dominant class of like these uh like white nationalism not a white national like white colonial type uh, ideas of like, hey, we can't give credit to these people, like they're less than or whatever. If they cited them, it wouldn't have worked. But if they believe that the silver of like, hey, that we are great and they came from me, uh, then it then we have you know everything that happened in France. Then it kind of pull, uh, like dominoes over to the Americas and everywhere else. It's like the reason why that would work. I just it seems like a structure that keeps repeating throughout uh, throughout time in history. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I just. Uh... It doesn't it, like like as a historical pattern, the Enlightenment mm -hmm. and the Renaissance, etc., don't make sense as European phenomenons, and in fact, they aren't because they come from the ancient world of the Far East and Near East. And I mean, if you want to call Rome European, you can, but like it's you know you know what I'm getting at here. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, uh, like yeah, like the I think that the North American connection is is only recently been uh discovered really and like uh and is, is still not at all understood but i but i personally believe it's there and i mean again this um the candy rock story comes from a book called um, the dawn of everything by david wengrove and uh i forget the co-author's name right now but uh if you if you like uh 1491 you'll you'll love the dawn of everything 
Yeah, I, I was literally deciding between asking for book recommendations and like moving on to, uh, to a different topic. So like, let's dive into that. I need more books on the subject. I, I, I'm reading journal, I'm reading anthropological journal publications from like, that are really quite anemic. Like they're very, uh, yeah, bore, uh, they're boring, but the, the information's there. So if there's like a consolidation like 1491 or that has like a nice flavor of something there, uh, what, what books would you recommend? So I'm definitely gonna, I'm, I'm gonna buy this one later, but what, what other books would you recommend? Since we're on Tecumseh, the, uh, mm -hmm. the book that I kind of, that, that like really set the tent poles in my series is a book, uh, Tecumseh and the Prophet, the Shawnee Brothers Who Defied a Nation. Um, probably the best book on Tecumseh ever has the benefit of being the most recent book on Tecumseh. It came out in 2019. Um, but it's very good. It, uh, uh, yeah, The Dawn of Everything. Um, it's like, I just, I've read that fairly recently, but like that, uh, that book really, really, really changed changed my perspective on uh, just about everything I think about the ancient world, like the ancient past, the deep, deep history. Mm -hmm. um, if we're if we're staying on that, I feel like we're in a kind of you know neolithic neolithic mood at the moment. Um, there's a book called there's an author called Ian Hodder who he's a he's an anthropologist who or i'm sorry an archaeologist who is the uh like uh, project lead at cattle Hoyuk, if you're familiar very before. it's a very like uh important well-known neolithic site somewhere in uh i think turkey oh. it's kind of uh it's 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 near yeah, the antiquity of like Gobekli Tepe. Okay, yeah, uh, the Graham Norton uh, areas that he doesn't shut up about. <laughs> he doesn't. He, he doesn't shut up about him, but he very rarely says anything worth saying. Mm. Uh, Ian Hodder is is the if you if you want to go for the um, you know decidedly gate kept academic, uh, big archaeology side of stories for, but he also had a great book about um why the agricultural revolution happened why we aren't nomadic peoples anymore to kind of spoil all of that real quick that whole book into a, a, a one sentence rather than it has to do with well we recognize that we got this many more calories farming or we have this many more people his idea is that we started to farm and to have a sedentary lifestyle because we started to accumulate too much stuff to move around with mm. and i just i love that idea of you know in in archaeology they call like this stuff you have your material history and i love the idea that we have all of these fantastical imaginings for how smart we are and all this stuff and it's like no 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 we fundamentally changed what it meant to be an animal on planet earth for our species because we had too many knickknacks <laughs> and tools and cooking and cooking stones and, and drinking vessels and all of this stuff that kind of defines modern life especially but had all of this stuff uh uh weigh us down and keep us in one spot versus you know the genius of farming or other human geniuses is a lot more we're pack rats and can't help it hmm. i'll have to read it the my, my favorite uh teacher in high school uh his name was woodhelm i think i always called him wild ham so i kind of see, see him sure. as, as yeah. that my, my name <laughs> he did not like it but uh it was an agriculture class and he said uh his his thing is agriculture is because we're lazy we just got to the point where it's like, well, I have to go hunting or I can go like keep that in a pen and then eat it. It's like, 
I like the hypothesis, but I'm definitely going to look at that one with open eyes to see if maybe it's because we're pack rats, which does have an element of laziness too. Like you get tired of carrying it. Definitely. And I mean, again, I've, that's, that's the bastardization and yeah. kind of what I took from it. And Ian Hodder is an incredible thinker. Uh, that's a, a preeminent archaeologist, certainly of the Near East, maybe ever. Like, <laughs> very smart guy. Very a book, definitely worth your time. Uh, mm -hmm. Is he is he uh, alive or is or is he like an ancient guy? He's he's alive. I think he's in his seventies. He's retired. Uh, mm. He, I don't know if he does podcasts. I've looked <laughs> into it briefly, but like, oh boy, would I listen to that one in a heartbeat? Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I'll see if I can get him on the show after reading a couple of his books. Uh, it sounds fun. The, do, for, for yourself, are, do you intend to do like a Mike Duncan, History of Rome type guy where he he's not writing books too? Do you, I, I, could see, I could see much of what you're talking about being consolidated into a, like a powerful book like Storm Before the Storms or uh, The Man of Two Worlds, uh, Lafayette. Like, I, uh, I, appreciate, I appreciate the boat of confidence. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what? Maybe, um, you know, my background's in writing. Writing's my first love, uh, in particular nonfiction. But uh, yeah, it's uh, you know, no one's banging on my door giving me a book deal. <laughs> but it's uh, it's definitely something I've I've thought about before. Um, I'm, I'm, I mean, thought about before. Listen, I have like thirty <laughs> book drafts open <laughs> at any given time that mm -hmm. I'm throwing ideas at. But uh, it's never something I pursued super seriously yeah maybe uh, one day yeah well I'm, I'm happy to read a draft the, uh, uh i think you have something here that people don't normally cover and i, I think it'd be great to see it out in the world the um after so you've covered the maccabees you've covered your covering uh to come is there a can we get a hint what what would be like another area are you gonna be in the americas is there like a like my a, next an uh, my next story is gonna we're going back to the ancient world um mm. So this Tecumseh, it's going to take me a while, probably about a year of coming out with, with shows just because it's a big story. It's probably be four or five parts. Um, but after that, um, uh, there's a character called Alexander of Abinotatius in uh, mm. the ancient Roman world who was a, uh, a healer. He started a snake cult. Um, who had that, uh and the the crux of the story is we know a little bit about this guy from archaeology because of his his cult you know um coin he had coins made with his face on it and uh and his is glycon the snake god that he worshiped and glycon was a real snake that could talk if you believe the stories mm -hmm. and there's like like real roman citizens who we know when we have their correspondence who said like ah yes and i was in abotanatus abotanatus and i uh and i saw saw alexander and his oracle glycon and it it, it was fine you know <laughs> they see this talking snake and they think ah whatever um for a long time most people assume though that this this uh alexander abotanatus guy was a kind of invention uh you know but eventually they discovered the works of Lucian, who's this ancient writer, very cool guy. I highly recommend the works of Lucian for anybody who likes reading ancient authors. Uh, but Lucian writes this whole account of his life, and Lucian hates Alexander, hates him with a passion. 
I read somewhere that uh, that he actually owed him money and all this stuff. Like I wasn't able to confirm that. But, uh, <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, but if, um, so you have this life story of this guy, and uh, who effectively is doing magic tricks and and fooling people that way. And magic is uh, is you know something I would only share with with you and whoever may be listening that uh, deeply deeply in love with magic always was when I was a kid. Um, so I was just fascinated on like, here's a story of this guy and like Lucy would go through and this is how he did it. And he has a tube through the egg and all this kind of stuff. Um, so that's the story I'm focusing on and kind of the, 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 the tension between the world who doesn't know a lot about this guy. And then the only source we have for knowing, learning about him, hating his guts <laughs> with a deep passion. Uh, and I also, you know, like, uh, the spiritual side of violence there's always these kind like quacks and liars who always do this in a religious sense you can even make the case that Tetsukatawa um is one of those people uh certainly the red sticks would have said that about Tetsukatawa as would white white folks but yeah that's that's what i've got in the pipeline that's coming out um whenever <laughs> whenever this is done Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, I got my big, I got a big epic planned on prehistory. Sweet. Well, I'm, uh, you have a subscriber in me, and I look forward to to all of it. The uh, um, so ending on a fun topic, uh, you, Graham Hancock and Zacharias oh. Sitchin. I don't know Zacharias Sitchin. I was just like pulled this because I was Zachariah. Zachariah. Um, yeah. I don't know if they're contemporaries in the sense of like how they think, but. Uh, what do you think about if you had i don't know how to ask this question other than just saying like do you think graham hancock is a piece of shit like is he full of shit the uh, i i think that the idea that there's like co-evolution of concepts is not inherently saying that there's like a massive civilization it's like my critique what, what do you think yeah uh well what i like about graham hancock let's start there <laughs> uh it, like legitimately though like they're they're um i think i i became aware of him years ago like many people did through the joe rogan podcast mm-hmm. same um and there was a bunch of stuff on there i learned about for the first time i, I before ancient people i might have heard about first from cram hancock um gobegli tepe i was aware of before that but like that's what i like about him is that mm-hmm. there's parts of history that are super uh you know not well known and he would bring some i like gobegli tepe i'd argue pretty famous now um i don't think it's because of uh uh, max schwartz i think is the was the uh, archaeologist on that site i think it's famous because of graham hancock and Mm. his his stuff about it um and like that said i don't mind people going crazy with uh far out their theories about the past i mean just now when i was talking about you know uh hey you know what really started the enlightenment enlightenment natives a lot of people a lot of people could say that that's its own kind of uh its own kind of out very far out their theory but you know i would leave it to the discernment of your audience if is if those things are equivalent Mm -hmm. but what i what i dislike about cranny and cock is you just make stuff up 
and a lot of it stems or if it's not made up he's it's just not true um or like patently false like easily disprovable and a lot of times the origins of those falsehoods are just racist lies you know Mm -hmm. uh so i think there's that said i don't think graham hancock is this evil horrible guy uh i do think he's you know has an interesting relationship with the truth i don't think i don't think he's a vicious racist uh but i but ultimately a lot of where his ideas come from are like you know a disciple of himmler uh and like without without ever bringing that up it's just odd you know Mm. um and of course there's this yeah there's this ancient group of people who are trying to communicate with us and i was like well which group are they you know (laughs) uh that said though you know if it's if it's 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 largely harmless graham hancock yeah. um and like i i have uh friends who are archaeologists and uh, have podcasts and stuff and like they hate him with passion and i don't blame them <laughs> i would probably hate him a lot more if i was a professional uh but i also think that like some of the you know atlantis and <clears throat> excuse me uh, the Atlantis as a kind of Nazi myth stuff. Hmm. I think archaeologists like to blow that side up of pseudo archaeology because then they're not fighting a guy who's much more famous and much richer than them with his pseudoscience. You know, they're Indiana Jones. They're fighting Nazis. Hmm. Uh, and I think the the academic community can blow that side up of Graham Hancock a little bit too. That said, uh, you know if it's something you like and it's you know it's not it's no worse than in most like made for tv documentaries well it's it's worse but like not too too much worse what's your opinion of them i've been monologuing here without yeah the i don't think you've been monologuing in my opinion i, I like what you've been saying the uh but the my 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 feeling are I, I do i agree with you he does like he he's bringing up ideas that would i think normally be left to the wayside so with jay rogan a lot of people give him shit but he also brings up things that are worth com- uh discussing and i know sometimes people are like oh do you talk do you engage with these weird ideas or, or not and it's like you don't know what a weird idea is until you after you engage in it like there mm. are times where we, we we thought for a long time anything past twelve thousand years you're an idiot yeah well now for sure yeah you, I, I think there's an element of like have an idea but then be open to you know changing the data the i watched his documentary that he had on netflix i thought it was kind of like I, th- I thought there was something there but it's like he he would look at something and he would like start saying something or or he would just go in a direction that i didn't felt i didn't feel it was true like I didn't but i looked at the evidence that he's like then making delusions from there were just times where it just didn't feel right it didn't like resonate with me like there's so i feel like he's he's like the foundation of what he's seeing like there are things to see mm-hmm. uh but there are times where it just doesn't feel like and that, that's just a feeling like i'm, I'm not gathering data conclusions uh, effectively either but sometimes it, it does feel like his conclusions are not they don't drive with what how i feel things would be but um but then again i'm, I'm just a random guy and he has his then then we're just having like an opinion battle so i I, uh, I, like, I like it and i dislike it too for those reasons i have a friend who um uh has a podcast about uh ancient aliens mm-hmm. uh the tv show and Graham Hancock is the regular on that on that program. Uh, <laughs> but I always thought um, about ancient aliens that if you uh, could strategically hit the pause or the mute button, 
you you could get a halfway normal uh historical education about something because it, you know uh, a sentence from ancient aliens might be like uh you know Myth says that the founding fathers signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776, but actually the document was signed over a several month period in various different places. But what if aliens? And it's just like if you just if you if you had that pot, you know, if you had the if you had a fast enough uh, trigger pull, mm-hmm. and you could hit that pause button just when you heard the word "but," you 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 could watch that show and learn something. <laughs> Yeah. And I haven't seen Ancient Apocalypse, um, but I have a feeling there's a kind of similar, they're, they're spiritually similar in that way, in that, like, mm-hmm. uh, I know he goes to the the Fort Ancient Burial Mound in that show, and I'm sure he gives you a bunch of great information about it, and then he goes off to La La Land, where in Resonance <laughs> Building and whatever he's talking about, right? So that's where, you know, the ancient aliens, there's a bunch of stuff on that show that like the uh, historical events that if you didn't know anything about, it would be really interesting to learn about. Hmm. But also if the only thing you know about it is aliens did it or this ancient peoples, you know, uh, from Atlantis did it, well, then you really don't know anything about it still. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, I would just like to believe in the indomitable will of humans, I guess. And then if there's aliens helping out, that's neat too, I guess, in their own, yeah. in its own little if you way. Don't, if you don't believe in the indomitable will of humans, it will find you and it will make you believe. <laughs> yeah. Go watch Rudy and then come back. But the, so <laughs> where, <laughs> but I, I was watching uh, Rudy with my best friend and in the beginning she was like, this is, I don't like sports movies a little. Why am I doing this? Like you, you owe me. I watched freaking your movie last week. It's my turn to pick. And uh, everyone else was fine with it, but she was like, give me a little shit, which is fine. But like, by the end of it, she was like crying, like Rudy, 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 Rudy. Yeah, so like it, it, it gets you. But uh, where, can, where can people stay up to date with what you're working on? You have a bunch of series coming up. You have good stuff out now. Where can we go to never miss a single bit of it? Um. Well, you can subscribe to religious wars wherever you get your podcasts um that'd be the best best thing to do um you can follow me on twitter um i'm at, at eric erik zero one um i don't tweet very much but uh occasionally i'll throw something out there and uh yeah those subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast that's the best thing to do and uh you know keep a lookout Sweet. Well, all that will be in the show notes as well for people who are on the go. Just come back, look at them. You can click them out. Uh, Eric, I want to thank you so much for spending so much time talking about this fascinating subject that I don't think people talk about enough and having your own unique bend on this. I look forward to your first book and your next series. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for uh, coming on the show today. Oh, Thank you so much for having me on. Big fan.